in relationship to God's purpose and plan for our life, that he is in the process of bringing about the greatest good for his church, for his people, and for you individually. And God's able to do all those things at the exact same time. That's what's amazing. I appreciate that of him because I know I don't have the ability to do two things at one time, much less some, you know, what, 30, 40 billion things at the same time. I assume that God is involved in. So as we walk through Romans, we talked about the cosmic laws that God has set up that govern the universe, whether we like it or not. They're in existence, and God continues to make sure that we come into compliance with them whether we desire to or not. He talks about justification and reconciliation. He discusses the issue of cheap grace and legalism. Then he begins to work through this concept of the fact we have two natures. One is our sin nature. The other one is our what? Spirit nature. So we have a sin nature and a spirit nature. We have both of those within us. If you haven't discovered that yet, look deeper. Okay? Look deeper. It's there. He tells us we must learn how to follow and submit to our spirit nature if we're to experience God's will and purpose for our lives. So we have this wonderful new relationship he goes on to talk about as sons and daughters of God and that he's personally involved in our lives, planning them, leading them, organizing them, putting everything together to accomplish the purpose and destiny that he has set aside for you. Now, As he began to share these things, the Jewish people began to get more and more uncomfortable because they were asking themselves, hold it, what about Israel? What about God's chosen nation? I don't hear you speaking to this issue, Paul, and we're wondering what is going on here. You see, God's representatives to the entire world have always been Jewish people. They were the chosen nation from Abraham on down through. In fact, Jesus himself was a what? He was a Jewish carpenter. He was a Jew. And that was said with pride, by the way. The term Jew is a powerful statement of I'm a Jew. Everybody go, oh, okay, we got it. We understand. So we see this marvelous, marvelous recognition of how God had worked through the nation of Israel. And he's saying, Hold it, Paul. Are you saying that God is establishing a new nation and that the Jews are not a part of it? We both know, Paul, that God promised that Israel would be the nation that would change this world. And God always fulfills his what? Promises. Exactly. God always fulfills his promises. And so Paul responds by stopping and working three chapters in relationship to Israel as a nation, what God is doing, what God intends to do, and what God will do with Israel in its totality. So he's going to spend three chapters doing that. We're not going to use three chapters today, okay? We're going to deal with one of them, the beginning chapter, which is Romans chapter 9. Now, as Paul deals with Romans chapter 9, he in this section lays out for us the specific attributes of God that he understands. And he shows us four marvelous attributes of God or characteristics of God, these divine attributes of God himself. And he talks about the fact that God is always faithful, that God is always righteous, 
that God is always just, and lastly, that God is always merciful. So these four attributes, he's going to point out to us as he walks through this picture of Israel and how God had chosen them and continues to choose them in a special way, but for a moment, for a short time, for maybe a couple thousand years, he is going to put Israel on the back burner and make his church, a new term, his church, the primary presenter of salvation to the entire world. Now, by the way, Paul is not happy about this. Paul is not happy about this. He recognizes it. He understands it. He's not happy about it. And these three chapters, you can feel that emotion coming through. He's like, I am so upset that the nation of Israel refuses to respond to God's call. It drives me nuts. And you see that over and over. You walk to the book of Acts. You see Paul so upset with the Jewish people. What is wrong with you people? You don't respond to logic. You don't respond to emotion. You don't respond to truth. What is wrong with you? And as he begins to lay out what is wrong with them is that God has chosen, since they have chosen, to use a different group of people to promote the clarity of who Jesus is. And this group of people are called the church. Exactly. So the church now becomes the primary presenter of God's truth of the good news that we continue to hear over and over and over again. So starting in chapter nine of Romans, let's read through the first 13 verses. And today what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a section. We're going to discuss it and then we'll go to the next section. Okay, so we'll read through the first 13 verses of chapter nine of the book of Romans. Paul shares, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and increasing anguish in my heart. I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. Those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God. Overall, forever praised. Amen. You get that feeling? Do you feel that emotion that's coming in here? And then he kind of closes off with this clarification that Jesus not only was the Messiah, he was God himself, presenting himself to his people, and they rejected him. Now he goes on to speak. It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor, because they are all his descendants, are they Abraham's children. On the contrary, you know the scripture, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And in other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was started. This is how the promise was stated. 
I like that better. At the appointed time, I will return. And Sarah will have a son. Now, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in selecting or election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as this is written, and now he quotes out of Malachi. Okay, he changes and he quotes a prophet, Malachi. As it was written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Father, speak to us clearly so we can understand this passage and apply it to our lives. Thank you as you do, for we come to you and we ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. God is faithful, and that's the primary thing Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the faithfulness of God. God always does what needs to be done. God always does what needs to be done. He has given us everything through His Son, Jesus. He's provided us with amazing grace and phenomenal purpose. But in doing this, God chose. God chose to allow Israel, as His primary instrument in the world up to this point in time, to be set aside for a time. So in this section, Paul is dealing specifically with God's relationship to Israel as a nation. He's not dealing with individual salvation. So don't misread what you're reading. He's talking about Israel as a nation and the importance of understanding how the church has now come into play. Keep that in mind whenever you read this section of verses. So he tells us that Israel was incredibly blessed in their calling or their vocation. In their calling or their vocation. That's the first five verses. She reminds us God had selected Israel and provided this nation with incredible blessings. They were adopted by him as his own people. He gives them the temple, the laws to govern them. He provides prophets and priests. He establishes the covenants, which are special agreements in a relationship with God concerning a promise that he will bring about. God said, I will do this. I promise you. And he makes these covenant promises between specific people who are representatives of the nation of Israel. So he makes it to Abraham. He makes it to Israel himself, Jacob, who will become Israel. And he makes it also to David, these covenant commitments that he makes. Now, God sent his son, but as a nation, they had rejected him. You get that? As a nation, they had rejected him. Paul didn't reject him. He was a Jew. Peter didn't reject him. He was a Jew. Thousands and thousands of people had not rejected him. They were all Jews. But the nation of Israel, the government of Israel, resisted and rejected the claim that Jesus brings. They would not submit. Instead, they would establish themselves as a separate group of people continuing to fall and make their stand on the laws that were given to them by Moses. Now, It's interesting enough that God actually tells us he had prepared them for this. 
He prepared them for Jesus coming. And we know that now as you walk through all these wonderful prophecies and clarifications. It's like you go, how could a Jewish person not know that Jesus was the Messiah? Look at all the incredible prophecies he fulfilled. But they reject them. They choose not to accept it. Paul brings these all into their face and they say, we don't care. We don't believe. It's done. Get out of here. Paul is amazed by the rejection, but he sees it. And he says, does that mean that God's word had failed, that the promises God had made were not going to come about? He says, no, no, no. God is faithful to his promise. But first you have to understand what the promise was. You see, the blessing that God gave to Israel was never about physical birth, was never about the physical birth of Abraham's children. Now, we begin to comprehend that. We've talked about it a little bit earlier when he speaks to the issue of the child of the promise or the child of faith. That Sarah had this child when she didn't have an ability to have a child except for by faith. And in her faith, God produces within her the embryo that grows and becomes Isaac. He reminds us that Abraham had two sons. One... The firstborn was named Ishmael. But that son came as the result of Abraham's desire to work his way for God and to establish himself as a father. And he stepped outside of God's provision and said, if God isn't going to do it, then I'll do it for him. His wife helped him in this case, by the way. Okay, so they all got together and the result was Ishmael. Ishmael is born. He finally has a child. And God says, what did you do? What is wrong with you? This Ishmael was not a child who would be honored by God as part of the nation of Israel that was to come. He was not chosen by God. Instead, Isaac was chosen. Ishmael was the firstborn, but Isaac was the chosen So the first thing we begin to understand is the blessing was never about physical birth through Abraham. Ishmael was also born of Abraham. He wasn't part. Okay, the second thing he says, it was also never about human merit. Later, Isaac would have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, but Jacob was selected by God to be the father of God's nation. And this is despite the fact they had the same mother, And no sin was involved as we could have pushed back with Abraham as he had an interaction with Hagar, his maid. In this case, he says, nobody had done anything wrong. But God chose in a righteous manner, not Esau, but Jacob whose name would become Israel, through whom the nation of Israel would be brought forth. Now, if Abraham's physical descendants reject God's word, that doesn't nullify God's elective purpose. It actually affirms the free will of man and the flexibility of God in choosing. It will always be done on the basis of faith. So, this picture of God's sovereign prerogative... Paul emphasizes this arbitrary way that God brings about a chosen people through Isaac, then through Jacob. Their mission was to serve God and to serve the world by being the nations of priests and lights to all the nations. 
They were always supposed to be that. The Jewish people were supposed to be the representatives of God, the evangelists of God, declaring the truth of God to everybody could see. Look at our nation. Look at our laws. Look at our priests. God is here. God is present. God is powerful. Look what's going on. But instead, they pulled back. And they established their holy huddle. And they said, you guys aren't good enough to be part of our group. Go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. And God said, hold it. Do you know why I chose you to be a nation? And all he hears is silence from the people of Israel. You see, they were to be the means by which all the nations of the world be blessed by hearing about and seeing the government of this one true God. So now he says, an interesting statement, he says, I loved Jacob. But I hated Esau. And you go, whoa, hold it. God hates someone before they're even born? What are you talking about? Well, he's quoting out of Malachi chapter 1 in relationship to the two nations that would be born out of Isaac and Esau. Edom and Israel. And he says, I love Israel. They're continuing to respond to me in faith. They were bringing forth the truth to the people. But I hate Esau because all that nation that's coming to play here continues to do evil over and over and over again. And so you begin to see God's movement and God's intention in relationship to nations. If a nation chooses to frame themselves against God's truth, they should be frightened Because God will stand up against them and he will stop them. Whoever they are, wherever they are, whatever they call themselves. The meaning of Malachi's phrase is that God chose Israel because of their faithfulness over Edom to be the people that he would work with to reach out to the world. You see, God calls nations to establish a moral standard. He calls nations to establish a moral standard. And that being said, the U.S. as a nation has made some terrible decisions. And I never do this, but I'm going to do it today. Okay? I'm going to do it today. Because I'm ticked. There it is. I'm sorry. But I just said, I, I, I said, you know, Lord, this is getting ridiculous. We need to clarify what you have said and how that comes into play in relationship to minimum standards of morality. Minimum standards of morality. So let me speak to a couple of them. First of all, the acceptance of abortion. Really? Really? It sets us up against God who creates life. God's word is clear that the sacrifice of unborn or born infants for our own pleasure is not acceptable and will not ultimately benefit anyone. It will only lead to worse decisions later. It will put us down a sliding slope that will bring about incredible, terrible Horrible decisions that will be seen as morally acceptable. And you say, oh, Pastor Lee, you're being ridiculous. I want you to listen to this simple speech shared by a Kentucky 
senator recently in Congress as a result as a result of us finding out and we thought it all along that Planned Parenthood was not only involved in the abortion process but they were selling the body parts of the infants that they were destroying that they were killing they were sell, they were providing these for the use of other groups and being paid for this let's watch this little clip because I think he says it better than I can Mr. President, I'd like to take just a moment to be able to speak about a subject that's very, very difficult for me to speak about, quite frankly difficult for a lot of Americans to talk about, to hear about. It connects to all of us in extremely personal ways. Let me set some context. Not long ago, a group of animal rights activists gathered around a research facility, a research facility that was using animals for their testing. The the activists gathered around the facility and chanted and had signs that they held up saying, it's not science, it's violence. And other signs that said, animal lives are their right. We have just begun to fight. As they protested to protect the lives of the animals that were being used in that facility for research. Now, I understand their frustration there. But let me put it into context of some things that came out this week learned that this week, an organization called Planned Parenthood is using children that are aborted and sending the bodies of those aborted children to research facilities, sometimes for sale, different body parts, to be used in research. These are not mice. These are not lab rats. These are children. Children that have gone through the process of a horrific abortion. This morning in an appropriations hearing, the President and I both were in, we had an extensive conversation about the rights of orca whales. And this protracted conversation went on and on that many people also were connected to about the rights of orca whales and the care for them. And then we had a protracted conversation about horse slaughter and how horses would be humanely put down. But in the middle of all that conversation happening today, there were children still being aborted with an instrument reaching in to a mother, tearing apart a child, but carefully protecting certain organs because those organs would be valuable to sell. Now, the challenge that we have on this as a nation is the argument is for that baby that that baby's really not a baby, it's just a fetus, it's tissue. That's not a human baby, is what everyone's told. That's just tissue, and it's up to the mom to determine what happens to that tissue. And then on the flip side of it, moments later, they take that tissue and then sell it because it's human organs that are needed for research. You can't say in one moment that's not a human and then sell it for the next moment as a human organ and say now suddenly it is. It was a human all the way through. There was never a time that wasn't a child. There was never a time that wasn't a human. And it seems the ultimate irony to me that we spend time talking about humane treatment of animals being put down like in horse slaughter 
and we completely miss children being ripped apart in the womb and their body parts being sold. So here's how it happens. A mom comes into a facility, gives consent to have an abortion, makes that request. After that request is made, to some moms, and we don't know exactly how they choose which moms, to some moms, they then ask consent for their child, after it's aborted, to be used for research purposes. From the video that was put out this week, they said that was actually comforting to some moms, that they would know how traumatic the abortion is, that at least some good would come out of it, that those body parts would then be used for research to hopefully save other children, which again comes back to this ultimate irony that we would literally tear one child apart in an abortion with the assumption that hopefully that would actually help some other child in the future, missing out on the significance of the child that's right there that could be helped by protecting their life. And then the doctor in this particular video gives the details of how once they get that consent from the mom, they would be careful to reach in and actually crush the head of the child to kill the child in the womb so they could preserve the rest of the organs because the kidney has value, because the liver has value, because the lungs have value, because the muscles in the legs have value. I would tell you, that child has value. God calls us as a nation to certain moral truths. And if we choose to disregard and disobey those truths, God's wrath will come upon that nation. Do not kid yourself. It will happen. And it is happening now. We, as the people of God, and the least need to stand up and say, this is wrong. This is wrong. And I will not be a part of it. God governs the nations and demands certain things from them. But Israel, he had a very, very high demand for. There was another recent decision by our nation. It was to reject God's statement that he made man, people, male, and female. And instead, began to declare them as primarily sexual. This resulted in the redefining of marriage itself. Let me say this, God did not make man homosexual and heterosexual. And we should not identify ourselves as such. You are male or you are female. Following that, you have certain responses that you make on the basis of your choice. And you're responsible for those responses. As a nation... We need to call ourselves to recognition that we are failing to understand and respond to God's truth that's laid out clearly to us. He made us in His image, male 
and female. Now, thirdly, in a completely different reign, but I believe it's part of the process that's taking place as we continue to destroy ourselves as a nation itself, we made a decision to support Iran in developing nuclear capabilities and to provide them with income that they have clearly shared they will use to bring about the death of every Israel that they come in contact with. That they will kill every Jew and anything that has anything to do with any Jew and all Christians as well. And yet we find ourselves in a position of support? We should be afraid. We should be very afraid of God's wrath. As he begins to show himself. Someone asked me, well, Pastor Lee, what's going to happen to the church? I am not concerned about the church. God will protect his church. God will continue to use his church. He'll do remarkable, amazing things through his church. He's perfectly able to handle that area. It's our nation that he has called us as people to establish that worries me. God will be faithful despite the unfaithfulness of nations. He'll protect and watch over his church and his chosen nation, Israel. Yes, it's still his chosen nation. Hasn't changed. Just been put in a different position. And you would be wise to follow in God's footstep. As Jesus said, if you build your house on the sand of emotion and human rationale, you can expect it to be destroyed when the storms come. But if you build it on my truth, expressed and clarified, then when the storms come, and they will come, you will stand strong. All right? So that was a big one. God is faithful, and he blesses nations and people who seek faith, who seek daily to make faith a dominant influence in their response to God and to others and to ourselves. So we're called to have faith. Where in your life is God telling you, you need to have faith? Trust me. Believe me. Follow my directives. Have faith in the truth that I have given. Where is he saying that to you? Where is he saying that to you? Back to Romans. Starting now with verse 14. So we got the first 13 verses where we clarify the faithfulness of God in relationship to his people and relationship to the nation of Israel. He says, it does not, therefore, depend on human desire. Excuse me. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Well, not at all. He said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not depend on human desire or human effort, but on God's mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, there's a tough statement. Let me put it this way. He is saying God is righteous. God is righteous. God always does the right thing. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, God always does the right thing. 
Yeah. It's true. He always does the right thing. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you guys, don't you understand? God always does the right thing, unlike you. Hey, I sometimes do the right thing. Sometimes I do. And I'm, I'm like, wow, that was cool. I did the right thing. But many times I don't. Hey, Nassim was, was here. You, you know Nassim is Marge's husband, Menashe. And he was taking care of an area over here in our back. You'll see this beautiful setup, by the way. You need to go over and check out the uh, new setting. The cats are mad in this neighborhood. They're very angry. The sandbox is gone. <laughs> yeah, it's gone, baby. You're going to go over there and you go, wow, this looks great. And in the back side by the tree, there's this nice little setup there. And we had to get about 12 bags of mulch to put in there. It looks great. This seemed to do a great job on that particular area. And he was standing there. And after he got it all through, he says, yeah. He said, but i got to go back to Home Depot now. I said, why? He said, because I bought 12, 12 uh, you know, bags of, of mulch and she only charged me for one. Get what I mean? See, sometimes we do the right thing. We go back to the store and say, hey, you need to charge you for those other 11 bags. God always does the right thing. You see, the fact that God was forced to select one nation over another does not mean that he didn't do the right thing. He always does the right thing for the right reasons in the right way. And that's what makes him God. That's what makes him God. That's the wonder of it. Selection by God is a matter of his grace declared in the midst of man's reception. He set into place the opportunity to save as many men and women as he possibly can before he comes back. It is man's free will that stops him from being able to save everybody. Peter tells us God's desire is for everyone to be saved. But he's unable to because of man's free will. Pharaoh, ruler of Egypt, right? Powerful guy. Moses, slave, weak guy. Messed up, failed God. God calls them both. First, he calls Moses, who responds to his call. Pharaoh then will be called, and he will reject the call. Strongly Powerfully, he will reject the call of God. And then God would do what needed to be done. You see, the scripture says sometimes God would harden his heart. And sometimes Pharaoh would harden his own heart. So we begin to understand that when Pharaoh hardened his heart, God said, okay, if you're going to do that, I might as well make some good out of this. And so he hardens his heart a little harder. And the result is... Egypt responding eventually in recognizing that God is God and Pharaoh is not. See, that was the final statement. It was for Pharaoh to say, you are God and I am not. And that's true of all of us. It's just Pharaoh was in a special place, a special position, in which he had actually declared himself as God to his people prior to God saying, guess what? I'm God, you're a fake. Let my people go, or things are going to happen. And that's the cry of God in relationship to each one of us. You see, Pharaoh has the chance to repent, but he chooses not to. He depends on his own ability and his own will. 
God is sovereign. He acts according to His will. He always does the right thing. Always. So God chose Israel and He condemned Egypt. For many reasons, but ultimately because it was the right thing to do. Jesus reminds us to pray. He says, now when you pray, pray in this way. Thy God will do the right thing. God, please let your will be done. What's the right thing that you need to do? Maybe this week. Some of you got free mulch. And you didn't go back to the store. I just don't know what that mulch looked like. You see, God is saying, do the right thing thing. You're my people. Don't have faith in manon. Don't have faith in money. Don't have faith in what you think will be your future. Have faith in me. Do the right thing. God is faithful. God is righteous. God is also just. God is also just. So he goes on to say, starting in verse 19 now, one of you will say to me, well, then why does God still blame me? Who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath that were prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared as well in advance for his glory? Even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, I will call it my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Just as Isaiah said, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. You see, this section is simply saying God is just. He is the righteous judge. He will always judge correctly. So the question we have, well, if God is sovereign, if he's already decided all this stuff, how can we resist him? If we can't resist him, then how can he judge us? It's not fair. Paul says, well, first of all, who are you to argue with God? If you argue with God, you'll be in the position of Job. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. You're going to be shown to be a fool. Got it? Fail, fall, and a fool. He says, if you argue with God, you will lose the argument every single time. Guess what? God is smarter than you are. 
God is wiser than you are. God has more knowledge than you have. God comprehends everything. And he appeals to the sovereign wisdom of the potter in refashioning the clay in a manner that fits the clay that he has to work with. He says, let me give you a simple illustration of a potter sitting down with this clay in front of him and he's making himself a pot and he's an established, capable potter. And as he goes to what it gets in the section and it fails to function the way he wants it to function. You know what the potter does, don't you? That's what he does. He smashes it down to the bottom and starts all over again. Because he says, I'm the potter, you're the clay. In this case, he's not referring to God arbitrarily smashing down the clay. He's referring to the fact that the potter knows how to make pottery. He knows what he's doing. And so when he starts fashioning a clay, he never intends to fashion a piece of clay into something that's useless that he has to throw in the trash. Some of you already know, I was actually, I know this is going to amaze some of you. I was a glass blower. I had a job as a glass blower. I did while I was in college. Whoa, you seen all those cool things that people make as glass blowers? I never made any of those. But, but the guy that hired me did. And he hired me and he said, Lee, I think you have certain skills and I want you to put them to play. And so I was the guy who would take test tubes and make them with slight rounded edges on them. So my job was to go, ta-da. And there it was, test tube. Isn't that great? I mean, I was good at it. That's not true. After doing this for a week, he came to me and he said, Lee, I'm going to pay you to do the devotions. I'm not kidding you. I'm going to pay you to do the devotions. You suck at this. You're just awful. I'm not that. He said, I've had to redo almost every one you did. You're costing me more than you're making me. I said, but he said, you can do the devotions and I need my house painted. So I painted his house. I'm a decent painter. And I did the devotions every day. You see, he recognized both my skills and my inabilities. He was an established potter in glass blowing. And he said, Lee, this is what you can do. God looks upon us and he recognizes who we are and who we want. And he fashions us into the person that he wants us to be. But sometimes what happens is we say, God, I don't want to be that. And we fight against God. And God says, okay, if you won't be what I've called you to be and made you to be, then I will use you to help others who are willing to be what they need to be. If you resist doing right, I will bring forth my wrath. But I will use you as much as I can to bring about great good to others whom I've called. Some are going to be a vessel of honor. Some are not. The Jewish people thought their national identity, their good works, put them in a position where they should be seen as God's people. And God says, that's not how it works. From this point on, from this point on, you'll respond to me on the basis of faith. Who are you to argue with God? You'll lose the argument. God's fashion isn't arbitrary. It's based on whether one is willing to seek after the righteousness of God that comes by faith. You see, Jeremiah 18 shows him a, poor, poor, a potter, 
or getting it out, who was working on a vessel that didn't turn out right. The potter revises his plan. He forms a different kind of pot. And God says in the same way, the potter in Israel is the clay. I'm the potter. Israel is the clay. I have the right and I need to shape as I know best my plans for Israel and for the world. God announces that whenever he is about to judge a nation, he's willing to change his mind if the nation repents. That's Jeremiah chapter 18. If the nation repents, then I will change my mind. I will reshape them in the best possible way, in the way that I know is best. So while individual Jews had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the nation as a whole had rejected him. And thus they'd rejected God's purpose for them. So God was changing his direction concerning them and was hardening the clay. And ironically enough, the Jews find themselves in the position where they have become like Pharaoh. Unwilling to let his people go. Out of slavery. Out of bondage. And to the wondrous place that Jesus provides by faith on the cross, they said, no, you have to do it by works. God, you're wrong. And God says, I am not. And so Paul says, God's clear purpose is to use their rebellion to do what he had always hoped their obedience would do. To bring the world into a relationship with him. You see, when you choose to do the right thing, God comes alongside and he gives us help. But when you choose to do the wrong thing, God steps aside And he waits for you to repent, or he steps back in and uses you to help somebody else. I.e., don't be like him. Okay? You seen that? Called scared straight. Don't be like them. God uses that. He says, hey, this is how it works. I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy And those will be people who respond to me in faith. That's how he's always done it. The people chooses that God chooses to harden are those who don't, as Paul says, strive for righteousness on the basis of faith. But as if it were based instead on works, verses 30 through 32. So you see that picture of Moses, the Jewish leaders, He mentions Exodus 32 next. The Jewish leaders found themselves leading the people away from God. Moses is up on the mountain. He's getting the Ten Commandments. And God says to him, the people are rebelling. Going, what are you talking about? I just left 30 days ago. Yeah, but the leaders have pulled the people away. And they're starting to rebel against my direction and my guides for them. Moses says, what? And he says, and that's it. I'm done with those suckers. I'm going to kill them all. Moses is going, don't do it. Please don't do it. He falls on his knees. He begs with God, please, God, don't do it. He said, I'm just going to use you, Moses. I'm going to get you one other woman. We're going to create a whole new nation. He says, God, please, I know they're stiff-necked people, but they'll repent. Just just give me a chance to talk to them. It's like God gets a big sigh of relief and says, okay, Moses, I'll let you go talk to them. Moses comes down the hill and he is so angry. He knows what's going on. He says, what were you doing? And you see, well, you know, we just threw some gold into the fire and out came this golden calf. (sighs) 
Moses finished up the process and he comes back to God and they have this wonderful dialogue. And as he interacts with Moses, he allows Moses to see his backside. And he says to Moses, Moses, I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy. It's a wonderful picture of those who are faithful before God. So God endures with much patience the vessels that he was preparing for destruction. Why would God endure with patience rebellious people if he was the one making them rebellious? He wouldn't. They have chosen to be rebellious. He's patient with them, hoping, looking forward to the possibility that they will repent and turn to him. God is the potter. We are the clay. We're all in the hands of God. He has a clear, clear purpose. He doesn't enjoy dealing with us as tyrants. He endures it. I've heard their cry. I've heard their affliction, he says, in relationship to Pharaoh. But he still waits as long as he possibly can because God prepares men and women for glory. But those who choose to follow their sin nature prepare themselves for destruction. See, he even told everybody he was going to do this. He quotes Hosea and he says, Hosea knew all along that God was going to call the Gentiles. And then he quotes Isaiah and he says, there's only going to be a remnant, a small amount of the Jewish people who would choose to follow God by faith. God wasn't unjust. He was simply doing what needs to be done. And he intended for the Gentiles to be brought into the kingdom, but the Jewish people refused to let them in. So God says, enough, enough. And he calls out his church. And Paul becomes the primary Gentile apostle, bringing them to an understanding of all that God had done. God is a God of of righteousness. God is a God who is just. God is a God who is faithful, but he's also a God of mercy. And grace always ties everything together. The scripture never talks about elect and non-elect. He speaks to the faithful and the faith what? Less. The faithful and the faith less. Paul begins his summary by saying this. What shall we say then? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is the righteousness that comes through faith. But Israel, who did not strive for the righteousness based on on the law did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they didn't strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. Verse 30 and 32. So Paul explains that everything he's been talking about throughout Romans 9 is about appealing to the morally responsible choices of the Israelites and of the Gentiles. And he says this, Faith is always the final solution. The Israelis sought to do it by themselves. They rejected God's provision and God's calling. They wanted to be saved by works, not by faith. Instead of recognizing the religious privileges God had given them, were to pull them to the awareness of their need for Christ. They insisted they were going to continue to use those privileges as a substitute for Jesus. I'm going to do it by my works. I am too good enough. I can do this. And so Christ, who is meant to be the stone of help, becomes a stone of what? What does he call it here? 
stumbling. They trip over it. They're unable to accept the gift that God gives them. Instead, they say, you will not give me anything. I'm going to earn it. I'm going to earn it. God's sovereignty expressed in grace. Man's faith expressed through free will. Together, they always work together for good. And the fact that we can't always understand how God's sovereignty works and how my faith works and how the free will thing all goes through doesn't make it less so. The one thing that God always looks for in people is simple. It's called faith. The Jews did not strive by faith, though they should have. They chose to trust in their own works. But the Gentiles came in by faith. God's process of hardening some on the basis of the criteria of faith is what he's always done. He gives mercy in response to faith. And he hardens in response to unbelief. God will keep his promises. And he will also accomplish his purpose. He's able to do both. He just had to be more creative. He just had to be more creative. Often in our own lives, we simply have to be aware how lost we are before we're willing to let God lead us home. All right? As we close up here today, and you want to pull out your prayer things, I want you to watch this, this short clip, and then we're going to take our offering. But I want you to think about this. God always calls us by faith before we can ever get home. Let's watch the clip. True story, God desires to get us home. And you never know what he's going to do to bring about that opportunity for you. So as the band comes up and leads us in this last song, they're going to play the first verse. As they play that, you guys can finish working on your prayer request, things you're ready for there, setting aside your offering, asking God to speak to you clearly and saying to you simply, Lord, where do I need to be just? Where do I need to be right? Oh. Wow. Okay. Where do I need to put that? Yeah. Yeah. Where do I need to show mercy? And that's God's cry to us, uh, even for this week. My thoughts as I, as I wrote them down here were along this end. God calls us to live by faith and to be creative about it. He's got lots of options. You simply need to find them. And that's our job as his children. You see, he lays out so simply for us the ABCs. And he says, you know, we all need to recognize that we're sinners who need to be saved. We need to admit it. He says, then we all need to recognize and believe this is a Savior who's been sent for us. And then lastly, he says, we all need to choose him as Lord of our life. That's the God who wants to lead us home. So think about those prayer requests. Ask God to speak to you. Set aside your offering. After this verse is shared, they'll take that and then we'll close the service.